shadows fall. Welcome to a world of mysteries, of conspiracies, of hidden and forgotten knowledge. There's a world more strange, more frightening, and more fascinating than most people ever imagined or dared to contemplate. Your parents, your teachers, never told you the whole story, either out of ignorance or fear. Your politicians may know, but they keep their mouths shut. The door is opening. Throw off your chains and blinders, arm yourselves with the truth, and take a walk along the razor-sharp precipice of the Outer Edge. That's right, we are back with The Outer Edge. I'm Jim Schwartz, and of course, with me tonight, as always, is Mike Mott. Mike, what's going on with you tonight? Oh man, a little bit of everything and not too much either, so I'm I'm just right. How are you? <laughs> oh, great. Well, we're in the uh, uh, in December, the start of the holiday season. My daughter's all excited. Santa Claus is going to come to oh, visit. That's right. That's right. <laughs> this yes, be, indeed. This will probably be her last year that she's going to believe in Santa Claus. So hopefully. Oh, she, really? Yeah. Hopefully, she won't hear this show. <laughs> is, she, is she already questioning? We have a. She has a friend lives right next door who uh, same age as her, but she uh, her friend has older brothers and sisters. So it's you know she was saying last year that Santa Claus wasn't real. So. Well, you know, you can explain to her as soon as she figures that out. You can explain to her that he's an amalgamation of of uh, um, an actual Christian saint and two pagan Norse deities and and, and just kind of and that that might set her mind at ease. So. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, uh, I'm going to take her, I think, to go and see the uh, movie uh, Krampus when it comes out, and just uh, there you go. <laughs> well, just, just explain, just explain to her that the eight tiny reindeer come from from Odin's wild hunt because his horse Sleepner that he that he used to hunt uh, human souls had eight legs. So he explained that to her, and it'll, it'll help her rest easily. I started to say I didn't even know that. Now I'm terrified. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, you know, I mean, it's uh, when they're when they're this age. I think it's you know it's really more for for mom and dad. Uh, you know, sure. reliving our. Uh, <laughs> well, it's good that it, you know it, it creates it keeps the uh, the idea of wonder alive in them. You know, in children for a long time, and and then they can go on to figure out that the world is a mixture of wonder and terror. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I I'd love I'd love to keep that part from her a little bit longer, but uh, yeah, yeah, that's 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 going to be difficult to do. So yep, it happens. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, we have uh, a fantastic show tonight, and I want to get right into it. Um, because we're going to be talking about uh, uh, poltergeist, and in particular, um, a book called The Rochdale Poltergeist, a true story uh, written by uh, Jenny Asford and Steve Mara. And we have them already on the line with us, so we can get right into the show. So why don't we just go ahead and do that. Uh, uh, Jenny, Steve, uh, glad to have you with us tonight. Thank you for having me. Yeah, good evening, Tim. It's good to be on. Oh, well, fantastic. Well, you know, uh, we have had we have had several guests on the outer edge in the past 
that have uh, written and experienced uh, uh, poltergeist activity. Uh, I, you know, I've I, myself, I I have witnessed uh, several times. Uh, very, very interesting <laughs> uh, uh, poltergeist activities. So it's uh, um, I'm 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 always happy to see a book as as well written and and obviously as well researched as as this one because I mean Steve, you were actually um, at the household uh, when all this was taking place. Am I correct? Uh, I was. Yes, I was privy to the experiences. Um, I saw them firsthand. I haven't forgot them, though. <laughs> well, now, uh, why don't you tell our audience, I mean, when uh, when, and where did this actually uh, take place? Uh, it took place in around about 1995. It was during a heat wave in the UK. It was August. And I first came to hear of the case from a telephone call I received. Now, at that time, I was working for corporate companies and businesses um, in the UK on a confidential basis, investigating uh, things of an unusual nature which might cause problems for uh, businesses. Hmm. Uh, and staff and so on and so forth. So my, I was doing a lot of work around the country at that time. I got a phone call from Watchdale City Council um, in regarding one of the homes they were leasing to tenants who were reporting disturbances and they'd been in a few times. I couldn't find any explanation as to what the reason was for the phenomena. Uh, they immediately thought that the family were hoaxing. Um, so, of course, they were quite distressed, the family, and uh, I believe a priest had been involved, and they asked us if we would go and have a sit-down meeting with them, so we did, and we they became our clients, and we took on the case for them, and we visited the location, um, which was a prefabricated bungalow. It was a, it was a bungalow that was made of basically... Sh- just metal sheet sheet metal to be honest with you they were they were only designed to be temporary homes just um just prior to the world or second world war however they became permanent homes and the family had lived there for 14 years and for all intents and purpose they were quite happy living there they didn't want to move they were known as the gardner family it consisted of mrs gardner mr gardner and mrs gardner's daughter jeanette and um, it was a three-bedroomed, small bungalow during a heat wave. So, you know, when you picture, you know, poltergeist phenomena, you kind of picture these dark, stormy nights and an old mansion and those sort of things. But, you know, it's quite the opposite, really. It was a, during a heat wave. It was a sunny, scorching afternoon. The birds are out singing and kids are playing outside. And I pulled up in front of a, of a quaint bungalow, um, not expecting to experience the things I experienced whilst I was there. Well, before we uh, before we go into uh, more details on uh, just exactly uh, what happened there, let's bring uh, let's bring Jenny in. Jenny, uh, uh, great to have you uh, with us on the show. And uh, uh, do you want to tell us uh, uh, how you got involved with uh, writing this book? Well, what actually ended up happening, and um, I started out as a horror writer, a fiction writer, and uh, and I still do that kind of thing on occasion. 
Um, but my boyfriend of five years uh, was a poltergeist focus uh, in a case that happened in 1982. Hmm. And he had been telling me about it for many years. And finally, I was like, do you mind if I write a book about that? So we wrote a book about it together called The Mammoth Mountain Poltergeist, and that came out earlier this year. And um, while my boyfriend Tom was, you know, kind of talking to people about the book and things like that, he came across Steve Mara on the Mappet website, and he got to talking to him on Facebook about poltergeist cases and stuff like that. And he said, hey, um, you know, and we, we sent him a copy of The Mammoth Mountain Poltergeist to Steve Mara, and he read it and really liked it, and... They put a review of it in Phenomena Magazine, and then Tom suggested, he's like, hey, Jenny, why, why don't you write Steve Mara's book? He has a couple of cases that, you know, that he needs to yeah, have written about, and there were good cases and stuff like that, so so that's kind of how all that happened. So then we just, we just interviewed him over Skype, and that's the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically, when... when this thing came about, you were called in by someone affiliated with the city or was, or by someone else? That's to you, Steve. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, so, I'm sorry. Oh, it was for Jenny, actually. Sorry, said I again. I'm sorry. sorry. I was just saying that when they called you about this, was it the city they yeah. called you? Or was it? Okay, that's very interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, um, at that time, I was doing a lot of work. I'd done already work for the Ministry of Defence, um, the numerous businesses, uh, supermarket chains, tenant associations, right. um, city councils and businesses. I'd, I'd done a lot of work, and of course, you, you must have some type of network through the through the public relations office, um, and they'd pass their information through to Rochdale City Council, who telephoned me for my services. So it was all kind of confidential at that time, um, and I ascended uh, to the location with the team, expecting to find a rational explanation, because, you know, most of the times I usually do. Right. Um, and provide a report to, you know, to Rochdale City Council so that they could work out a decision on what to do. Wow. So what, what, what was the original function of the building? Well, it was, you know, it was, it was a home. They'd lived there for 14 years. They were quite happy. Mrs. Gardner had actually lost a previous husband there. He died. Um, he'd had a heart attack uh, whilst in bed um, a few years prior to us attending. And Mrs. Gardner had remarried recently. And um, her husband was living there with with Mrs. Gardner's daughter, Jan he was at that time I think she was around about 31 years of age but um, unfortunately Mrs Gardner's daughter Jeanette had a, um, a, a mental disability and she kind of had the mindset of probably a teenager um, very pleasant girl though but herself had had had, had a daughter herself who wasn't actually living with her was living with another member of the family um, and of course you know one who walked up the path it looked like any other normal building um, you know there were quite a number of prefabricated bungalows around that area right and, uh, until I opened the, until she opened the front door in floods of tears of course um, and, and asked me in and I, I tried to you know come down her and you know I put my arm around her and I said is everything okay and she was she was terribly upset um, and you could see that she was traumatised 
and um, she'd obviously been informed by Rochdale City Council of our assisting, uh, and we were going to obviously pay a, a visit and obtain information about the uh, the incident. And uh, the first thing I noticed was a smell in the air, which was like a damp, um, like a you know that damp smell when well, yeah, wet dog smell. <laughs> That's the only yeah. way I can explain yeah, it. That's a good way to put it. Uh, clear, clearly that there had been water damage uh, throughout the property. There was plastic sheeting over everything. It was uh, on the floor, over the settee, the couch, the table. Yeah, everywhere was covered in plastic sheeting, which they'd had obtained from the council. Uh, and clearly you could smell this, this um, definitely damp in the air. And that's wow. uh, uh, that's that's what the the initial complaint was from the owners, wasn't it? That uh, there were uh, that uh, there was unexpected leaks uh, of water, and I'll put quotation mm. marks around that. <laughs> well, yeah, they had reported. I mean, it, it, unfortunately, the press had, when we got involved, unfortunately, the press had already had some media coverage on it. Unfortunately, mm. I mean, we don't like that. Normally, you know. Most of the times we'll walk away from a case when it's got that type of media interest. However, you know, it was only only because Rochdale City Council, you know, pretty much said, look, we, we could really do with your help that we took the case on. And so we had to take into consideration that a newspaper article had gone out. I did wrote it up in the most humorous way, as they do. Um, spooky spills scare family from home. <laughs> and um, the, a picture pertained to the family... Um, with a mop, holding a mop up to the ceiling, and of course, three worried looks on their faces, and of course, it was all very humorous at the time, when I, when I first saw that article. Uh, um, of course, it wasn't, that wasn't the story, that wasn't the picture I got from when I meet, when I first met the family, they were all very traumatized and upset, and of course, the general reports were that, apart from the normal things you'd experience, um, during a poltergeist investigation, such as the audible phenomena and object manipulation and those sort of things, there was what was referred to as outpourings of water. And the council had gone in several times to try and ascertain where this water was coming from. The problem with this was is that the, the, the family's home didn't have a header tank in its loft, mm. in its attic. Um, there were no water pipes up there at all. It was actually a solid floor coming in, so the water pipes came in from at ground level. Um, any water that was on the ceiling could only derive from a leak from when it had been raining. But then if you take into consideration, we're three weeks into a heat wave. It hadn't rained. Right. Um, well, could, it, could it be condensation? Ah, well, I mean, this is it. Obviously, we thought, you know, the, this amount of water must be over a long period of time. But then, but from the reports that we got from the Gardner family, it didn't fit because condensation seems to affect the whole location. There was condensation meters in there. The council had checked. In fact, it was very clear from condensation. He even measured the plaster condensation within the plaster, and that was uh, that was that was seems to have been fine. Uh, in fact, on several occasions, they just gave up eventually without coming up with any explanation and left them with reports which, which they could file and, um, and send in to Rochdale Council because they were asking them to write um, a detailed account of when 
the, the, the incidents happen and where, so they could try and find out what was going on, but they couldn't find an explanation as to where the water was coming from, and only could come up with a theory that the family must be throwing water around themselves in great quantities. However, according to the family, that wasn't the case, and they didn't want to move, and they were quite sincere. And of course, you know, I've when interviewed many, many people over the years, um, I've been doing this for 33 years now, and you get to you get to know when people are being honest with you and sincere and, and are generally uh, traumatised through some of these experiences. And, of course, that's exactly what I was met with. Right. So now, you say that they had been living in these uh, in this house for 14 years, but the the incidents didn't start until really quite uh, quite recently in their in their time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it had only it only been. I think the, the incidents had only started. We're about five months into the incidents mm-hmm. uh, of a ten month stretch, and um, it was a short lived phenomena. Um, the family, of course, at that time didn't know how long that was going to go on for, but they, they didn't want to move. They, they they hadn't even asked the council to be relocated. They were just trying to get some help. And then, of course, they just didn't know where to turn. Um, and, of course, we do the normal routine. We sit down on that first visit. We sat down and, and interviewed the, the family. All very, very sincere. Um, in fact, you know, the little pointers, we took the witnesses to locations where they if, if for an example if mrs gardner said she saw something take place in the hall we would relocate mrs gardner in the hall uh, and question her there to see what her response was in regarding her eye contact and movement so because people in locations when we living in an event they tend to look at at the location where it took place and point towards that location and that's visually seeing it in the head which ascertains the fact that it, you know it gives some credence to uh, the sincerity of the report right uh, and so we, we we were quite happy to ascertain that they were telling the truth now even though at, at a time they could have been misidentifying something but we do know that the family were telling the truth to us at that time so now was there some kind of uh, uh, of catalyst possibly that that may have started all this that uh uh, you know that that you may have found, or did it just really seem just to start unexpectedly? Well, you know, most of the documentation what we read is about poltergeist infestations, um, usually revolve around a focus, a catalyst, right? Uh, and they usually of adolescent age, more usually more female than males, but it has happened with male with males as well in children. Um, Usually, they tend to fall under a pattern, the family, usually having problems of some sort, be it traumatic, financial, um, even family issues such as marital. Uh, all sorts of things can't usually, you know, seems to be prevalent in those authentic poltergeist cases. Right. You have to question why that is. Now, we believe from working in the field for all these years, um, there would seem to be a bit of a rule book in regarding poltergeist infestations to the point where they are very precise uh, on their actions and follow a progressive pattern of events. Um, and they, they did miss, they misinterpreted the first events as knocks and bangs. Um, they just thought that it was next door or they thought it was, um, 
you know, just somebody do workmen or something like that. And, uh, but they, those escalated to a more regular basis. He started off the phenomenon just as knots and bangs and raps, as poltergeist phenomena often does. But then quickly progressed into the second stage, which was your object manipulation and the movement of items and stacking and things disappearing and relocating, asportation and apportations and... Even some, on some occasions, uh, even find, yeah, finding things that don't even belong to the, that environment. Uh, that moved on, of course, to, um, to sighting of all, of, of unusual phenomena such as, um, amorphous shapes, dark and, and light coloured shapes. Never, um, human shape because they tend to be more associated with alleged hauntings. Um, and then it kind of progressed again onto the physical phenomena, the pinching, the, the, the prods. Um, that sort of thing, and then uh, even in some cases, you can even go one further into psychologically affecting those individuals to the point of oppression and depression. So there does tend to be a rule book, um, and we do know little techniques of enticement and little things that points towards what poltergeist phenomena do. We were trying to ascertain through the information that we obtained, um, was it poltergeist infestation? Right. Uh, and if so, why? Now, the only catalyst of focus at that time, just going back to your question, could have only been Jeanette. Now, taking into consideration, she's 31 years of age, but she does have a mental capability around about of a teenager, unfortunately. Um, and, of course, the family had gone through some issues and were having some problems. It was, by all intents and purpose, an environment where poltergeists could infest. I mean, there's no reason why it wouldn't infest anybody else's house like that, but it does tend to be a pattern when you look at these cases, like the Enfield poltergeist case, which is a very well-known one in the UK. A similar sort of situation and a similar sort of household um, with those traumatic experiences and, of course, family issues which go hand in hand. And so we can only ascertain at that time that Jeanette may have been the catalyst but that's not always, it's never, never rule of thumb. Uh, when you read the documents about poltergeist infestations, right, that when you right. remove, when you remove them, you remove the phenomena, but that's not always the case. Well, you know, there are, there have been cases of, of hauntings that are very similar to poltergeist phenomena, and they will occur in the same locale, even if they may take, you know, a period of time between occurrences like decades or even longer. So do you, are, are you fairly certain that this was a, uh, uh, that she was a catalyst, or do you think that this could have been something that was already there? Well, what we were saying through the investigation was that um, if Jeanette was a catalyst, and it was leaning towards that, it was around about a 70% chance of that, that it was... Um, she could, it was a transplacement type phenomenon as well. So that means that she didn't have to actually be at that location for the phenomena to, um, take place. It wasn't always, even though they did follow her on occasion to other families' members when she was staying overnight, the phenomena followed her. And the, the, the reports came through from her family members that incidents were happening there while she was, she was there. But on a couple of occasions, during our experiments and, and investigation, the, we removed the family from the location and we had continued phenomena take place there for, for a duration of two days. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's very... Uh, that, you know, it, it seems to be like a lot of the times 
a lot of times these these types of things are are in the environment more than they are. They may be reacting to people or, like you said, responding. You said, mm. what did you say, instigating or, or there's something instigated? Isn't that the term that you used? Um, yeah. so, so there's something there that, that brings these things out, even if they're dormant or if they're kind of lurking. There's something that they that they want in terms of energy or feedback or, or something like that. Well, that's it. That's I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I think what we've discovered really is that we're talking with something that time uh, fear feeders, in a sense of speaking, they right. seem to feed on the emotion uh, and upset in that environment. Now, by creating phenomena, now poltergeist phenomena is never wasted. You'll never have an incident take place that the witnesses are unaware of. Poltergeist phenomena doesn't waste its time uh, or, it's, you know, or it's energy it's its energy exactly yeah. so it creates phenomena yeah. for, for the witnesses to see to generate fear and stress and emotion and vexation to the point where it feeds from it to create the next phenomena and it's a bit right. of a vicious circle it goes round and round and round um, and that's that tends to be the situation they definitely don't seem to waste actions everything's right. done for a purposed reaction from the witnesses Right. Well, one of the things that, that I've looked at in the past is that these type of phenomena seem to feed on fear, like you said, but that the human brain is actually an electro, electromagnetic receiver and transmitter. And the human brain actually generates the most powerful electromagnetic field when it is a heightened state of either terror or rage. Yeah. So if these are entities or, or some sort of... of uh, I swear to parasites mm. that feed off of electromagnetic energy that people generate, then obviously they're going to want to uh, engender as much terror as they can. Well, that tends to be the situation, yeah. And that, this is why you get such um, traumatic experiences over a short duration of time, unlike hauntings, which, you know, tend to be, uh, you know, they can go on for lots of very long time. Well, of course, there are different types of hauntings. Of course, you've got the interaction hauntings or intelligent hauntings as some may say which sometimes can be uh, misidentified as poltergeist phenomena but then you have the residual hauntings and that tends to be more of a recorded playback event which doesn't interact with the witnesses or environment you know the poltergeist phenomena always tends to be short-lived it always tends to be demonstrative on the sunniest of days unlike haunting phenomena which tends to be reported during uh, darker hours i think uh, one of the most fascinating parts of the the Gardner case is the water phenomena and mm. i mean i after reading this book i mean i i did you know some some research on trying to find other cases uh, mm. that that exhibited this type of phenomena and and i tell you something they're very few and far between and, yeah yeah i mean well, you know what that, that, I never found anything. I couldn't find anything for years. I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I was just saying I couldn't find anything for years, uh, a similar case like this. It was only a couple of, about two years ago, um, I stumbled across a television show called Paranormal Witness, Mm -hmm. which was, uh, I believe it's been shown in the the US. And it was, I think it was one of the episodes in season two was entitled Rainmaker. And I was sat, I remember it very clearly. I was sat there drinking my tea, uh, a cup of tea, and watching this. And suddenly, it was as if I was watching the whole 
incident unfold about the Watchdog Poltergeist case. It was exactly right. the same. I just couldn't believe it. I, there was another case out there which was identical. Um, and I had tried for many years trying to find a similar case. Now, don't get me wrong, there has been manifestations by poltergeist disturbances reported before. Yeah. Uh, in some cases, even tar, oil, and occasionally on b blood as well, which hasn't apparently been analysed and not to be the owners. Uh, all the witnesses living there. Well, there, there was another recent program, I think it was the same series, Paranormal Witness, and it was on uh, uh, just this year, actually in the last few months, hmm. and it involved a pond or a lake behind a house, and something from the lake apparently reaching out to the people in the house and trying to lure a young child into the, into the, into the water, and they hmm. would find water in the house when this would happen. Um, yeah. Is it? Yeah, so, you know, what, what this makes me think of in terms of older um, folkloric forms and, and, and things of this nature is a water elemental of some kind, something that is, uh, uh, in previous times, might have been, um, might, might have had sacrifices made to it, you know, or it, yep. you understand what I'm saying. And mm. now, mm. that type of thing doesn't happen anymore. Um, so it, it it's it's something that, like you said, lives off of fear and, and heightened emotion. But uh, yeah, uh, yeah it, it definitely has a. It, it could have a tie into some really old stuff. You know, when you look for instance at the, at the Celtic um, uh, folklore of the British Isles, you'll you know you'll find things like uh, you know like Peg Powler and and Jenny Green Teeth and all these other types of water entities that lure people and and and, and, and terrify children and things like that like that so yep. you know it would be interesting to find out if, if there were any sort of lore going back you know into antiquity involving something like that in that area well we did do some research uh, we couldn't find anything associated to the location paranormal or non-paranormal of interest to tell you the truth um right. you know uh, we, we even looked into the you know the electrical hypersensitivity section of overhead pilots substations generators reservoirs underground springs lays you name it we, you know, we went through the lot, but uh, even ground um, penetrating radar, you know, was one was brought in over the garden at the back. But it wasn't anything unusual apart from your normal sort of things and pipes and, and wiring, you know, for, for 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 locality, you know, for electrical systems. But that that was it. There was we couldn't find anything um, historically about that location. Wow, it's very interesting. So Steve, why don't you uh, why don't you describe for our listeners just uh, just exactly uh, what kind of uh, um, uh, water incidents were were occurring there at the household? Okay, well there was there was three main events. The, there were a lot of different things actually taking place water related. However, you know, I mean, it started off basically by the feeling of a, a single drop of water fall on your arm. Of course, you look down and you can see it on your arm and you think, where did that come from? You look up, it's, it's bone dry. There's nothing up there. You see, we're looking up at a, a ceiling which is painted white and you can clearly see it. Um, there's, it's not even damp. And yet you're thinking, you know, it's quite a heavy drop of water that fell on me, but no idea. Um, that's how, that was the first things that were reported by myself and, couple of other investigators just on occasions um, as if it was as if a droplet of water purposely fall, fallen on them from just kind of nowhere and uh, then a second report came in from investigators which were in the living room and the adjoining door from the living room to the kitchen was suddenly beaded in water 
it just seemed to just and the blink of an eye just manifest itself on the door and of course there was a bit of a fuss over that and of course the gardener family had reported not only water flowing across the ceilings but also it raining in the in the building in each and every room or sometimes simultaneously which was a little bit hard to uh to believe at first and um, the main event was we were in the hallway and all of a sudden we heard a cry out from mrs gardner and we rushed into the hallway to see water f on the ceiling uh, it's hard to explain it. it's moving across the ceiling as if it was intelligently moving and the only the best way to describe it is if you have a glass of water and you throw it across your kitchen floor you'll see it move and arc out in a direction and this is exactly what we were seeing on the ceiling but at the same time not a single drop of water was dropping to the floor it was just clinging to the ceiling moving intelligently it came to across a light fitting and then what it did it stopped in its track and moved around the arch it arched around the light fitting on the ceiling and we were just in awe and i remember one of the investigators just nudging me <laughs> I had this camera around my, you know, around my neck on a on, on a strap, and she nudged me, and I looked at her and she said, "Take a photo." <laughs> and you know, because I was that in awe of what I've seen, I didn't even think. Believe it or not, I've got photo. I've got a camera in my hand there. To be, I didn't even think take a photograph. I had to somebody had to nudge me. I was like, "Get some photographs taken," and it's like, "Oh yeah, of course." You know, so we snapped away, and and, and it was incredible to see. And the first thing we we thought was, well, where's this water coming from? Because we, at this stage, we'd already been up in the loft, and uh, and right above where the water was, you could literally go up in the loft there and the trap door and put your hand out to the right over where the water is, and there's nothing up there. It's just a board and it's dry, and you know there's no pipes, there's nothing. And you, you when you you got your hand on the top, when you kind of look down, you you're right, you know your hand's right above it. Yet the water's flowing across the ceiling right there. Now, what's really interesting is the we'd managed to take we wanted to take control samples, so we took some tap water as a control sample, and we also took a sample of the water that was on the ceiling. So we ended up with the two, and we sent them off to North Northwest Water Laboratories for analysis and awaited their response. Um, we knew that it was going to take maybe two or three weeks to get the information back from them, but, you know, they said they would kindly offer the services and analysis. Um, no sooner had that water appeared, it seemed to disappear. It just seemed to just soak back into the, in, into the ceiling, you know, from once it came. It just disappeared and left no trace behind very quickly, in fact. And we were quite... At that point in time, then we had to consider maybe the family were telling the truth about everything, you know, because we can't throw anything out now. We're not after witnessing that. Um, and, and I truly understand the, the problem that they were having. Um, and on, on the second occasion, which was the other significant incident, um, Mr. Gardner, shout, uh, he'd gone off into the kitchen to make us all a cup of tea. And we heard the pots and things being moved in the kitchen. And, of course, we heard him shout for us. <clears throat> and we went into the kitchen and we just, we, we, there was 
three of the investigators just stood there, you know, at, at the kitchen door, looking at Mr. Gardner, sat next to the cooker with a large umbrella up, and it was, it was, it was raining, heavily raining in the kitchen, like, like a proper storm, it was, these weren't drizzle, it was, it, this was heavy droplets, this was like storm rain, it was, it was coming down thick and fast, and I looked up, we all looked up at the same time, and the whole ceiling in the kitchen was a shimmer, an absolute shimmer of water, and it was just dropping down, now I'll never forget that image out of my head, looking down to my left, with my cup, on top of the worktop, with a little bit of milk in, wait, waiting for my tea bag to go in, and I could see my milk splashing out of the cup because the droplets were that large hitting the hitting the milk. The milk was jumping out. And it, I looked over at Mr. Gardner and he's just got this bemused grin on his face as if to say, I told you so. And we were just complete. We didn't know what to say. And do you know what? It, as soon as it, it started to slow down um, quite quickly... But we did notice, and this is what's really interesting, at least four or five large droplets, slightly larger droplets than the water that was dropping down, go upwards instead of downwards and join the water that was on the ceiling. At least five times that happened. We all witnessed that. And then it it just disappeared again, just went back into the ceiling. Um, and the whole kitchen, everything was absolutely soaked through. I looked over at Mr. Gardner, shaking my head, and he just, he shook the brolly, <laughs> he shook his umbrella, he put it down the side, not a word from it this time, shook his brolly, pulled it down the, the side of him, got up, grabbed the mop and the cloth, and just went to start wiping everything down. He, he hadn't even said a word, it was as if like it was a normal, everyday event for him. Of course, we couldn't believe what we'd seen, it was... It was ridiculous. I, I have no explanation for it. I never will do. But, uh, you know, we all witnessed it. And um, we, we've no idea where that water ever came from. That's just... <laughs> it, it, that's, it, it, it's just mind-boggling to think that there you were experiencing something so unusual, yet to the members of the household, I mean, this was old news to them at this point. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, it, it was old news to them. You could clearly tell by Mr. Gardner's actions that it was just like an everyday event for him, you know, but um, trying, trying for them, trying to explain that to people of authority, you know, like the, te like the landlords, it's, it's a difficult thing for people to digest, and of course, we didn't digest it when we went, we just thought, nah, there's going to be an explanation Nation. And, uh, and after interviewing the family, and I believe that they were telling the truth, I thought, well, they must be misidentifying something, you know, of a common cause. There must be a rational explanation, you know, a leaking pipe, something, you know, it's got to be, and we'll, and we'll find it. <laughs> no, that wasn't the case. And, of course, that family, uh, you know, were quite traumatised by the regular events. Of course, that wasn't the only thing that was taking place. There was other poltergeist infestation um, phenomena taking place simultaneously. Okay, well, uh, I want to uh, uh, bring that up, but right now we need to go ahead and uh, uh, take a uh, take a scheduled break here. So uh, I'm Tim Swartz with Mike Mott. You are all listening to The Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. Tonight we're talking with Jenny Ashford and Steve Mara, and we will be right back, so stay tuned. Father still begs for change. Mama won't. 
won't say his name We like to talk about him every holiday My friends are moved away Music just ain't the same We like to talk about him every holiday Conspiracy Journal is your number one source for the hidden world of the weird and strange. We bring you thought-provoking and controversial material for free-thinking individuals who are seeking what is really going on in our world today. Some of this material may adversely affect you. Other pieces are meant to enlighten. Either way, be prepared to be intrigued by such things as the reality of UFOs, ghosts, strange creatures from time and space, hidden conspiracies, time travel, Nikola Tesla, suppressed technology, and a whole lot more. You can find out more by visiting our website at conspiracyjournal.com. There you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter sent directly to your email address. You can also receive our free print catalog. Just send your name and mailing address to Mr. UFO 8 at hotmail.com. I'll spell that out for you. M-R-U-F-O, the number 8, at hotmail.com. Mr. UFO 8 at hotmail.com. Find out what they don't want you to know. Up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more supermanhomepage.com you're listening to the outer edge radio with william michael mott and tim schwartz only on psn radio to the Outer Edge. I'm Mike Mott. Here was Tim Schwartz and our special guest Steve Mira and Jenny Ashford to talk about the uh, their research into the Rochdale Poltergeist case. So before the break, what was the last thing we were talking about? Well, I was... Uh, um I was interested, in, and, and we can ask Jenny about this, uh, uh, Mike. Uh, we had talked about possibly what uh, uh, could be some catalyst in in starting poltergeist activity uh, you know it, you know including you know households that uh, are in disruption you know uh, emotions in play and things like that and i suppose jenny my question would be i can't think of any household that hasn't had you know this kind of stuff happened at least you know uh, uh, one time, and, and and many households it happens you know, uh, probably constantly. So why don't we see a lot more poltergeist activity than we actually do? 
Any idea? I mean, I... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's actually something I kind of wondered about, and um, I talked to, you know, Tom Ross, who I wrote the Mammoth Mountain Poltergeist with, about, you know, why it was that that it suddenly happened to him also, and um, I'm not really sure yet, because, you, like you said, like, pretty much every family has some kind of discord or some kind of, you know, anxiety or whatever going on, and it's like, you would think that this kind of thing would happen a lot, but it really doesn't. It seems to be very rare. And it's, I almost feel like there must be some kind, because I don't know if I necessarily think of it as quote-unquote supernatural. I think it might just be some kind of, maybe some kind of scientific, you know, thing having to do with, you know, quantum physics or something like that, who knows, you know, that we don't really understand yet. And that in very, very rare circumstances, like everything just kind of coalesces you know, to make this kind of bizarre phenomena happen for a little while before it fizzles out, because it usually doesn't last very long. So well, you know, it's interesting. The only thing. Uh, it's interesting when you think about though. There have been cases where poltergeist activity ended up manifesting as entity encounters over time, yeah. like like the the uh, Jeff the mongoose case, for instance. Um, which started out with poltergeist activity and eventually became like a little animal humanoid um, that would torment the family. So, yeah, you have to wonder, you know, could there be more than one thing going on here? Um, you know, the, the, you mentioned quantum physics, and, and that's one thing that, that Tim knows that I am very interested in. And I see this, you know, it, the quantum realm often manifests even our subconscious manifest our expectations, I should say, and you know, even if it's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which which you know, in which subatomic particles behave in the manner that is expected of them, or is is predicted only when they're observed. When they're not observed, they they do something totally different. So that tells us that you know that consciousness that our consciousness has an effect on the quantum realm, whether we realize it or not, which means that we actually have an effect on reality itself. So could there be something out there that reacts to that expectation? Maybe it's conscious, maybe it's not, but it, it behaves as if it is. So could it be that there is that there are that there are frames of reference th- uh, types of, of consciousness out there that react in such a way as to fulfill um, our fears mm. even if there are subconscious fears yeah I think we are actually touching on something quite interesting there and it does seem to be some evidence towards those theories I mean if you think back to the Philip experiment where manifestation was generally created by the, the experimenters um, and because they envisaged an individual um, even to the point of giving him a lifestyle and clothing and how he looks then uh, they, they did actually report seeing an apparition of that you know under poltergeist infestation locations and, and of course there was a case about 15 years back in southern England where a young girl had gone missing um, a 16 year old and she had been missing for three years and was presumed that she may have been dead. They never found her. Um, and they started to have disturbances take place in the home, in the family home of the mother and fathers. And they escalated into a poltergeist-type infestation and then manifested into... Because they thought they were being haunted by maybe their own daughter 
you know, the, right. the mother thought she was trying to contact us and this, that, and the other. And, of course, she, they did start seeing the apparition of her, mm. you know. But it was really interesting that uh, a year after that, well, no, actually, about seven months later after the incidents, whilst the incidents were still taking place, she actually turned up. She actually ran away right. with a, a boyfriend, right. and so she wasn't, she was actually words, alive and well. <laughs> well, this this reminds us of, of, of stories from demonology, you know, where uh, demonic entities will take on uh, a form that you expect or that is used in order to lure you in, fool you. Like many times, uh, some of the worst haunting cases have started with, you know, uh, first poltergeist activity and then, oh, I'm a lost little girl, I died here, blah, blah, blah. And then it ends up that they end up dealing with a full-fledged demonic manifestation and they find out that it was the whole time that's what they were dealing with. Yeah. And so you have to be really careful dealing with these things because you don't know. You know, it, it, it's like it's like yelling into a dark Room. Well, yeah, but you, know, you, hear, you hear a voice back, but you really don't know who that is yelling yeah. back at you. I mean, there are there are things a lot worse than poltergeist infestations. I've only come across two cases in thirty three years when um, they're not nice. I didn't like them. <laughs> I'll be yeah. honest. With you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're not not very nice at all. And, well, they, uh, and they and they can masquerade as other no, things. Yeah. Most well, you know the the story that you just said about the uh, uh, the family who thought that their own daughter maybe maybe haunted them. I mean, it reminds me of the old story, and who knows if it's true or not, or just you know uh, almost uh, almost an urban legend about the uh, the woman who kept dreaming about her. Uh, um, her her dream home, you know, the, the the home that she always wanted, and then one day she actually uh, uh, was out driving with her husband in another town and saw this house, and was so excited she actually you know went to the front door and uh, knocked on it, and the people who answered it were just shocked because they said that their house had been haunted uh, by her. Yeah, live hauntings. Live haunting, yeah, yeah. I mean, they are, are reported live hauntings. No, we don't know if we're dropping into the doppelganger type effect here, or there's something masquerading, or it, it, you know, it's, it's so profound. And this is why you know we don't have all the answers because we are dealing with a subject which is unknown, and we know very little compared to what we should know. We put we do actually still only know very little. Well, Steve, why don't you uh, why don't you tell us about um the uh, the evening when uh, uh, you sent the fam the Gardner family away, and uh, and you all uh, 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 sp- spent uh, the you spent the entire night there, didn't you? Didn't you? And uh, we did, yeah. yeah, we, yeah we, and, we, and all the weird stuff that happened to you. A couple of a, a couple of nights we were there, but um, the. There were lots of things taking place, you know, during the day and the night. I mean, we we know that the vicar, the priest had been around, local priest from the church. So we sat, um, we went there, went round to the church, had an interview with him. Very nice man. He was a Catholic. He was a Catholic priest, and um, it, I was quite taken back because I've dealt with priests before, and I was quite taken back by his abruptness. Basically, uh, we sat down and. I introduced myself to him, said I was, you know, acting on behalf of Rochdale City Council and I've been asked to assist the, with the, um, the Gardner family and the disturbances that I reported. I believe you're aware of them. And he, he immediately looked at me and he went, oh, the poltergeist. And I was quite taken back by that because never has that ever happened before. Um, normally they're a bit more reserved than that. Uh, and I said, well, yeah, what well, makes you, you know, well, how do you come to that? 
conclusion. He said, oh, he, he, he's a poltergeist. So, um, I, I am aware of that. I visited the location. I said, right. And he said, and then I witnessed what happened was, and he went on to tell us, he, Mrs. God had been round there and to the church. She worked there part-time as a cleaner, so it was a, um, a way of talking to the priest. And, of course, he did visit at the home. On his first visit to the home, a very large painting above the fireplace, um, which was a, a, it's about a three foot long, about a foot and a half high. And it was one of those old 80s paintings uh, f- made of, like, foil of silver and, and brass foil of tigers and it, it suddenly just shook a few times which caught his attention as he looked up this, this thing launched itself it, it must have had to have lifted itself because the nail was still in the wall off its off the nail and launched itself across the room a good five or six foot and, and the corner of the painting hit him on the top part of his right thigh where he said that he had quite a nasty bruise um, he knew straight away that he wasn't dealing with normal type of phenomena here. And the more he investigated, because the whole point of that was that he was thinking maybe a blessing of the property would be required. Um, at that, ascertaining the fact that it was a poltergeist infestation, he went away and contacted his, um, his hierarchy, should we say, in regarding a request for a blessing of the property. However, when he explained the situation to them, to the diocese, they refused the blessing because they said it would be pointless because they're not dealing with a haunting, they're dealing with a poltergeist, and they believe it to be more haunted individuals as opposed to a location. Mm. So therefore, that it would have been um, non-productive to, con- to conduct a blessing. So that, that, that abruptly ended um, with his help. So, and then it kind of led on to the, on to, um, the Rochdale Council team to try and deal with it then. But, you know, whilst we were there, we were experiencing quite a handful of different things. Objects would be fly. So, uh, Mr. Gard was walking down the hall when a, a battery, a small triple A battery, shot out of Jeanette's bedroom. Now, nobody was in there. Shot out of bedroom. I mean, we didn't see it. It moved that fast. It was just something blurred past us. And literally missed Mr. Gardner's head by a good two or three inches and, and literally hit the, hit the wall in the, um, in the hallway so hard that it put an indentation in the, in the plaster. Mm. Now, if that had hit him, obviously there would have been a, you know, obviously it would have been a serious injury. However, you know, as typical, stereotypical acts of poltergeist infestations, it's not really so much the injury, it's the fear of it. And of course, I was well induced, you can well imagine. Uh, and of course, he was a bit shocked by that, but it wasn't the first time such things have launched themselves around the house. On another occasion, the investigators walked, we were doing rotations from room to room during the evenings, and um, they're just listening to the house, the, the, the environment, because we, you know, we have to take in consideration this is a location that we don't know. We don't, we're not too aware of the sounds, the natural sounds. And we were just taking it in, and of course, investigators locate, relocated into the lounge, and of course, stumbled straight across a statuette that was sat in the middle of the lounge carpet. Now, they hadn't got a clue where that had come from. It was about 12 inches tall. It was a, a statuette of Athemus, who represents justice, you know, with the scales in hand. And immediately looked at this. And I tried to figure out where it came from. And, and, and to be honest with you, nobody, none of the investigators could recall even ever seeing it. 
before. Uh, well, so basically, we took photographs of the location where it was. We measured the distance of, of, of it to the nearest walls. Was it really central in, in the lounge? It wasn't. Um, it was slightly um, off, off skew. But then when I picked it up, it was quite warm to the touch, which was interesting. So we, 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 I just placed it on the side. I thought, well, the only way I'm going to find out where that is, is one of two things. That is, you know, we'll have to go through the videotapes. Now, when we go on an investigation, the first thing that we do is we do a 360 sweep of every single room, covering everything in that room, so we can go back and look on the videotapes, just so, in case something like this happens, at least we know where the object it moved from. And if it got from point A to point B... Uh, and had to have taken turned to corner, then we're talking an unnatural trajectory, which 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 breaches your normal physics. So, of course, we walked through the videotapes, and there was nothing. We couldn't find it. It wasn't. And this was taken in the morning when we got there, about twelve. Well, I think it was about ten to ten to twelve something just in, just in the morning, and we looked around. We filmed everywhere, and on those videotapes, there is no statuette. As far as we're concerned, there was no statuette in the house anywhere to be seen. Um, so we really would come up with a stump there. We had to ask Mrs. Gardner when she returned the following day where the statuette was from. And of course, when she came in in the morning, we said, "Can you tell us where this is? This yours?" And she said, "Yes." I said, "Well, where was it? Where does it?" See, it goes by the side of the television now. And but you could actually just make out like a small dust ring, actually, where this object, where this ornament would sat, and had been sat in its in, in there for a while. Now, on the videotapes, it's not there. It was never there when we got there. So where was it? And you know, and, and was it in preparation to manifest during the early hours of the following morning? It was. It was so profound, and we've no explanation for it. But we have heard about apportations and asportations before. So they had that take place. Um, there was object movement. You know, things would disappear. We'd place a cup down and we'd turn around to do something, go back to get your cup, and it's not there. It's it's been moved or it's somewhere else. Uh, little things like that were happening. Um, there were still bangs and knocks, and as it and also the sounds of somebody walking around on the plastic um, sheeting. Yet you clearly could hear the plastic sheeting as if somebody was walking on it. Yet nobody was walking on it, and um, we were all very still and listening to the sounds. A clock radio came on of its own. It all sounds ridiculous, this, but it's all true. The clock radio came on its own, and it it, it wasn't even radio. It was like words. Were they in there? You clearly define words there, but you couldn't quite make them out. Um, and then you think, oh well, it must be picking up maybe a taxi or a baby uh, monitor or something, you know. But then you realise suddenly that it's not plugged in and there's no batteries in it, and yet it's lit up on the front saying it's time on it. And you think to yourself, where's it getting energy from? You know, that lasted for about two, just over two minutes before it just suddenly died and just turned off. You know, um, it, it didn't make any sense. Of course, I, I had an incident where I heard my name called over my shoulder. Um, it was a name that nobody really uses for me. It was, it was said, hello, Stevie. Um, nobody calls me Stevie. Um, yeah. It was a very unusual thing. Well, that's, all, that's, all, that's almost a diminutive, as if to mock you. You see, yeah, as, it, as if it, you're a it, child. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, it, 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 yeah, and see, that indicates not some sort of subconscious manifestation so much as it does mm. an intelligence. Oh, there was definitely intelligence there. 
Most definitely. I mean, for something like that, obviously it must learn, it listens, you know, it, it reacts right. and acts. You know, and to say something in a mocking way like that, that would be like calling me Mikey. You know, yeah. it, it's it's it, it's a diminutive. Mm. It, it's meant to make you feel uh, intimidated. Yeah, I mean, it was. It seemed to me right. I was the only one who heard it, though. This was, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, literally the, 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 because it was so loud. I would have expected nearly everybody to have heard it in the house. Yeah, it was, well, it was meant just for you. It was, yeah. Um, we, yeah. we, we, yeah, we, yeah, it, most definitely. Uh, and of course, it did work. Yeah, it sent a shiver down the spine. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's what I'm looking for because yeah, that little I mean, bit of shiver, as on the arm, stood up. Well, think you about know. it. That yeah. that little bit of shiver is is a rot getting a rise out of you. Oh yeah. Spike. Oh yeah. When we had that electromagnetic spike, for all we know, that gives it a tap into you. In yeah. other words. To, into the into your particular frequency, you know your your electromagnetic uh, output. It kind of lets it plug in. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. It was definitely quite a personal thing. That it was uh, it was right over my shoulder, as if the sound came from my shoulder. You know, right, right. down to me here. Um, and and of course, the most probably the most significant event of the whole investigation followed about an hour later. Um. If you can picture this, we're sat all in the dark. There's no lights on in the building. Um, everybody is placed in different rooms, the investigators, and, you know, equipment's all set up and running and blanket monitoring areas that we're not in. And we're just listening to the environment, you know. It's, it's still, it's quiet. And then, I mean, I'm sat on the end of a double bed in the back bedroom, Um on the right to me is a female investigator, Carol. On the left of me is another female investigator, Bell. And uh, both have been in the field for quite a lengthy time. And out of the darkness, from right behind us, we heard a very deep, rasping breath. And it wasn't just once, it did it three times. Now, it was pretty loud. We all, I think we, I think momentarily, we all kind of just paused and froze to be honest with you I just, I just got this and it was just this blankness there as if nobody would dare do anything I remember looking to my right and Val was just staring at me as if with this look on her face as to what the hell is that and I'm not turning around look you know I looked to I looked to Carol Carol was looking at me with exactly the same expression on the face now I'm thinking oh well I know what these girls want I'm the only guy here you know, they're both looking at me for the support. I'm going to have to turn around into the darkness behind me to see what is making that noise. I didn't want to do it, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> now, taking in consideration, look, you know, I, <laughs> I, was, I came on this case as an absolute complete sceptic. You know, trained in parapsychological science, it trains you in such a way where you look for rationality, you know, you try and work out what, what if it's down to your own perceptions and belief system, you know, and I, I've never been faced with like, I've, you know, I don't, you know, I've been a little the odd thing now and again over the years, but, you know, I was quite happy to, to, to sort of to shrug things off and say, yeah, I found rational explanations for pretty much everything I've come across, but, you know, I, <laughs> there was these things flashing through my mind. I thought, okay, I'm going to have to turn around and look into the darkness to find what this thing is. And I remember literally getting my chin to the over my right shoulder just to turn around. And at that point, 
I must have left the bed because I don't recall how <laughs> people ask me this over and over again. I end up four foot in front of me is a is a is a dressing table. I end up on it. Um, I don't know how I got there, but the first thing I recall is pain. My back, something has thumped me. I, I, but I, do you know what? I, I, I didn't even think about it. <laughs> I have no shame of saying I ran for it. And I did. I ran off into the lounge, panicking, with the two girls roughly straight behind my heels. <laughs> we got into the lounge, all the investigators there saying, what's going on, what's the panic? The light went on. Of course, do you know, the investigators were so, rather than going rushing back to the scene of the incident, they were too busy trying to photograph the the, the, the growing bruise, which was about maybe four or five inches, on my back. Wow. I lifted up a T-shirt. You could clearly see instantly from the photographs that it was it was bruising. It was red mark. And it, it, I'll be honest, it hurt like hell. Now, at that point, this is the point where it almost changed. Everything nearly changed because I went outside the front. I sat on the wall outside. And at that point, the first thing that entered my mind was, is grab my stuff and get out of there and don't go back. And this is not the sort of profession I want to work in anymore. <laughs> you know, I, honestly, for the first time and the only time in my life, I thought, that's it. I'm going back to electrical engineering because that's, that was my profession before I became a parapsychologist. Um, I can't deal with this. You know, I can't protect myself. Uh, you know, uh, that's it. This, that proves it for me. Paranormal phenomena is real. I don't need any more proof. That's the end of that. Yeah. But then, you know, another five minutes into it, I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to explain my, my actions by leaving this? And the family are traumatised, you know, they, they need my help. I need to explain something to Watchdog. I can't just, you know, at the end of the day, I've got to be professional. So I was enticed by the other investigators to, to carry on with the investigation, and I did very reluctantly end up going back in there. And, of course, do you know what? Uh, that night went very slow from then on. I could not wait for the sun to come up, to be honest with you. I was on pins all night from then on. Now, a lot, you know, a lot, I'm, a, I'm a quite a big guy, and it takes a lot to shift me four feet off a bed from a sitting position on, to, on top of a dressing table. Now... The only way I can describe it is because I've been an electrical engineer, I know what it's like when you get an electric shock, it repels you. And it, that's as, it was exactly like how that happened. It was like a punch and an electric shock at the same time that re repelled me. And, the, and, of course, a physical punch as well, uh, which hurt like hell, to be honest. But um, it's the only way I can describe it. You know, then we, right. and again, we're dealing with some type of maybe electrical phenomena associated exactly. to disturbances. And don't forget that water is a great conductor. Oh, isn't it dust? Oh, and that is what we found out through the analysis of Northwest Water Laboratories, because I even sealed it even further when they came back to us, and <laughs> it was quite amusing. We opened the letter, and they did run this area on, on this analysis sheet and put a question mark. And I thought, hang on, hey, these guys know what they're doing. You know, what's why should there be question marks? And, of course, the tap water was normal, you know. But they, they measured a conductivity in tap water, because there is a, a conductivity in tap water, or coming from the faucets, should we say. Um, and that's basically because water runs through pipes, and sometimes some of those pipes are often metal, copper, and they generate, as water passes through them, they generate a very small charge. Now, that is harmless to us for drinking, you know, um, and consuming, but the electrical charge is only quite low. It's usually about 190 UCSMs. 
But the, the water sample that we'd taken from the ceiling was something like 1,793 UCSMs. It was ridiculously high. You know, it was as if that the phenomena, the water phenomenon on the ceiling was electrically driven, you know, and, and it kind of fell in line with me thinking back to this punch and this electric shock. Are we dealing with this phenomena has some type of electrical conductivity to it and, you know, a, a combination of, of, of utilising electricity and, you know, it, it, it all fell in. And, of course, because we, we'd obtained the photographs, the analysis and the reports and the witnesses, you can well imagine it got international recognition at that time. But, you know, I never... I've had plenty of opportunities, guys, to write a book about the Watchdog case. I've always wanted to. However, I'm a very analytical writer, and it's just the way I've, I've wrote over the years from doing, you know, um, different types of reports. And I, I could never really, I never really did the book because I don't think I could actually put into the book how I actually felt the emotion, you know. And when I read the book, the Mammoth Mountain case, which Jenny had wrote about Tom's experiences, the way she wrote it was very... It was very good. You know, it really did put you there as, as, as if you were witnessing the incidents themselves. And that's what Jenny's done with this book. I mean, it's great that it, she, the way she's wrote it because I don't think I could have done it that way. And she actually draws you in as if she puts you there with me, experiencing what I'm experiencing and, and, and the thoughts going through your mind. Um, and, and that's, that's what's really good about it. That's what's so appealing about it, I suppose. Yeah, I I agree. She uh, she she did a fantastic job in in, in putting this this story together, uh, and I mean it is it's uh, it's it's very descriptive, and it just it really draws the reader into uh, what was happening, uh, how the uh, how the gardeners were feeling, and uh, <laughs> and how you were feeling after. Uh, after you got after you got the punch and was set uh, set flying across the room, <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to get out of there. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, and you know that that's interesting because out of everybody that had been in and out of that house, including the gardeners, I mean, had there was there anyone else that experienced uh, a, a physical contact from uh, whatever this uh, you know thing was? Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, Jeanette had been physically attacked, and her Jeanette's daughter has also had also been physically attacked in Jeanette's room while she stayed over one night with a friend, and a friend witnessed it as well. Um, the priest had witnessed certain things, and, uh, and one of the neighbours had witnessed something as well, when she, who we got testimonies of. And of course, the the phenomena continued and to the point where you know once we got all, all our data and put it all to a report and went back to a sit-down meeting we watched our council and provided this report to them and our our conclusion in regards to the phenomena they realized very quickly that you know they don't want bad publicity and they do need to assist the tenants under these circumstances so they did and with our you know with our help relocate the family now the problematics of this is that poltergeist phenomena can sometimes you know f seem to follow them 
especially if there's a catalyst or focus involved. Mm. And so it did so for about three weeks, funny enough. Um, they were relocated to another home, um, and they continued to have phenomena for about three weeks, and then it suddenly stopped and, and never returned. Um, the house itself, the, the bungalow, where they left, on the day they left, was very interesting because Mr. Gardner rang me up and said, uh, I asked him how the new house was, and he said, oh, yeah, we will we get the keys tomorrow, and I said, fantastic, and he said, well, we moved out yesterday, and I said, oh, right, we're staying at, uh, at, at, at Mrs. Gardner's sister's, you know, I said, yeah. So I had a phone call from the council complaining that when we locked it up, because uh, he locked it all up, made it all secure, went and handed the keys in. But the council got on, touched him, and were quite upset at the fact that he'd left every single window in the place wide open. Hmm. And Mr. Gardner said he hadn't, he'd locked them up all up, not a single window was open, you know, and, and of course all the windows were apparently all wide open, left open, which was very unusual. Uh, even small windows, which wouldn't, he said, we never used to even open that window. Uh, even that had actually been jarred open. So that was an interesting thing. And there were lots of other things that took place during that investigation. But at the end of the day, the phenomena did cease. We, we, we advised the Rochdale City Council to leave the building fallow. In other words, a, a void from any electrical input into the building. And I don't mean just switching it off at the consumer unit. I mean actually stopping it dead at the three phase coming in. And then basically leaving it void of any human agencies for a duration up to a year prior to actually putting tenants in there again. We have a specially devised um, form that we submit to those people, the new tenants, uh, and it asks them questions in a way that they don't realise that we're asking questions about anything paranormal in nature, but certain questions that would help us ascertain if these disturbances continuing there. That report came back as if everything was fine. Um, and we did a second follow-up about six months later, and still everything was fine. So that was good. So all in all, you know, the family went on to, to live a normal life, you know, after three weeks of, of the phenomena dying out in the new building, uh, and never did return. But um, it was very, very, in all, all in all, it lasted for ten months. Um, ten months of hell for the family, mm. you know. But, uh, and, of course, you know, Mrs. Garner was still upset, and she was still crying, even if she was, even though that the house that had been given was a lot bigger and a lot nicer, she was still right. very upset. Traumatised. Yeah, and the fact that she didn't really want to move, you know, she'd had lots of fond memories in that, in that little bungalow. Well, now, so what ended up, well, I was just going to say, what happened to it? What happened with the bungalow, is it? Well, the bungalow, the bungalow got reoccupied, uh, and everything was fine for those tenants that were living there. About a year later, it was occupied. Now, uh, Mrs. Garner, she uh, she actually felt that rather than this being a, uh, a, a, a poltergeist, that it was more along the lines of a, a traditional haunting, didn't she? Well, initially she thought, she didn't know anything about poltergeist infestations. Mm -hmm. She just, you know, I mean, the, the, she, it's not often talked about in that generation, and hauntings are, you know, people have heard of hauntings for many a year, and... The first thing that came to mind is that she was being haunted by her ex-husband, and sometimes the footsteps that she would hear and the coughing or the the heavy breathing, she she put it down to her husband. And in fact, it, you know, it, it was it was more likely a poltergeist infestation than than an actual haunting. But right. you know, then I do believe sometimes that this in, in poltergeist phenomena can 
can, can cause mimic phenomena. And I think if you believe strongly enough it to be, say, for instance, you're being haunted by Uncle Albert, then you might ascertain the fact that it is Uncle Albert, and it manifests well, the fact that it as can Uncle mimic, Albert. Yeah, the fact that it can mimic someone that she disliked, she'd had bad experiences with, perhaps. Uh, the, the, again, that speaks to an intelligence at work. It does, it does, and but what is that intelligence? I mean, it's questionable. The documentation in in things like that gets very a very grey area. There are lots of different references and terminology. Some will go down the fallen angels, entities, uh, beings that have never been um, spiritual or human at any sort at any time. And then there's the elements and the uh, and, and right. light beings and all sorts of wonderful and fantastic references. But at the end of the day, nobody really knows, apart from the fact is that we are dealing with some type of intelligent entity that seems to be a short-lived phenomena. I think, uh, uh, to me, one of the things that seems somewhat unique about uh, this incident or series of incidents is that you know you had you know cases uh, well you know like your own experience or or the priest where people were actually um, uh, injured. Uh, I mean, albeit just you know slightly, but still uh, you know the priest had the painting uh, uh, knock against him and, and cause a bruise. I mean, you you were struck yep. and and developed a bruise when uh a lot of the more you know traditional and you know i mean what's what's traditional you know who knows you know but traditional poltergeist cases uh it it seems almost that the poltergeist goes out of its way to scare somebody by throwing things at them but at the last minute uh nobody is hit uh, you know yep. the 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 missile or you know whatever is thrown at them you know stops or or yep. goes by them you know just at, uh, at a hair's breadth but mm. at the end nobody is hurt. No, I mean you can you can assume the fact is that the if the entity is feeding off the individuals in that home, it, it doesn't want them to flee the home. You know, um, it wants them to still stay, but just put just walk that very thin line um, and. You know, generate as much emotional ve- and vexation as it possibly can to uh, to <laughs> to carry on further phenomena. I mean, we have come a long way since then, you know, since the nineteen ninety five. You know, and over the last uh, oh, twenty years now, you know, we parapsychological terminology and and the th- and the evidence that we found supporting some of these claims is is has grown. We don't document it as much, and it's not as much as you've seen in the field, but. You know, we know that displacement effect takes place, and displacement is, it happens in, in poltergeist, certain poltergeist infestations where objects are moved, hmm. and they're moved to an accuracy. You know, they're moved to the same amount, so say 20, 22.6 inches, for an example. You know, and then you, you'll find something else is moved, and that's moved 22.6 inches and stuff like that. And um, you do find displacement like that, you do find on that trajectories um, and of course we, we also find that we're pushing towards direct interaction transplacement into the individual so it would explain why certain people would suddenly hear something and expect that everybody else has heard it because the immediate thing that we do is we believe that it's, it's, it's harmonic and be it harmonic that it rattles in the eardrum and it's interpreted across the, the eardrum uh, the ear nerves and 
um, and of course the cochlea inside the brain and creates a language and we hear it and we interpret that. Um, however, there's a good chance that it's directly interacting to the cochlea, which is beyond the eardrum. So it's not actually harmonic and it's not actually acting in a way where, you know, it's in the air so people to hear it. It's direct placement to the individual. Now we do know that this, um, tests and they have worked as well in, in electronics. So people who have been born without hearing and been deaf, what they've, tr they've actually placed elect small electronic, um, very, very small tech, Technology now onto the cochlea, um, beyond the eardrum, and they can interpret sounds into language now. So we do know that by doing that electronically, it can happen. So we're pushing towards the theory that transplacement can happen like that, just as it can be transplaced onto recording devices. One recorder might pick up something and another one wouldn't, even though they're both identical and both acting in the same way at the same time. So, you know, we are getting closer to trying to come up with some type of explanations, but we don't know what we're really dealing with, and that's the problem. Yeah, at the, uh, at the end of the day, you know, you have a lot of experiences, but what does that lead to? You know, I mean, you know, you can, you can sit around and conjecture all you want, but you're still, I mean, after all these years, we're all still left pretty much in the dark on just what the root cause is. Yeah, we may not find the root cause, but um, we're, we're chipping away at um, how it interacts and how we perceive that interaction. You know, we're learning more about ourselves in, in our sense. And I think a lot of the, a lot of the um, answers will lie with us in the study of the human brain and, and how we how we may perceive these things and why certain people perceive things differently. Because perception is a wonderful thing. We all perceive differently. We all assume we all perceive the same, but we don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the thing that has always struck me about uh, uh, the poltergeist phenomena is that, you know, first of all, I mean, there's definitely an intelligence involved, albeit it may be almost a rudimentary intelligence, but there's also a sense of humor that's involved a lot of times, and that is very much, I mean, well, at least, I mean, it, 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 it's hard to say, I mean, we only have experience with humans, uh, but that seems mm. to be very much a human condition. You know, that, that sense of humor, you know, a childish, sometimes sick or black sense of humor, but definitely uh, a sense of humor is at play. Yeah, it would seem that there's definitely traits of, of yeah, there's definitely, you do find evidence of that. And of course, it makes you think then, then that, that they think uh, in the same way that we think. And if that is the case, then, you know, we have to question, are they derived of our, of our own making unaware? You know, and we fall back to the old parapsychological terms of unconscious manifestations, you know, that you, you're just not aware that we are attributing to the phenomena and it's gaining its information and knowledge and sense of emotion through us, um, but just by unknown means. You know, we've so much to, to study in this field, but the problematics of this is that rarely does it, you know, is it around long enough under under scientific environments for us to bench test these things, you know, and we have to grab as much as we can when we can under these conditions. And uh, at the same time, though, it becomes troublesome when you're dealing with traumatic 
you know, people who are having traumatic experiences and living in those conditions, you have to focus on them. They're your priority. Um, but unfortunately, you know, you don't get enough time to research it under the conditions that we want. And, uh, I'm sure that would, uh, that benefit the cause, but it doesn't work like that, unfortunately. <laughs> well, you know, an, uh, another thing that, uh, to me is, uh, fairly unique about, uh, uh, this incident was that, uh, you as investigators actually uh, were able to experience the phenomena. I mean, uh, gosh, how many times have you heard, uh, you know, the stories of investigators who go into uh, a, a, a situation like this and the phenomena just shuts down? And well, just- you know, Tim, Tim, I don't. I, to be honest with you, I didn't believe them. <laughs> Do you know, I mean, okay, the, the internet. I mean, this is. You know, 1995, it was long before the internet I was working on, you know, that wasn't around then, and half the equipment that we used to investigate phenomena now wasn't even around then, and, you know, I'm, I'm, as time's gone on, you know, it's, it's, it's the aspects of paranormal research has changed drastically, there's a lot of what you might refer to as ghost hunter toys out there, which are absolutely useless and eliciting any truth out of phenomena, um, however... At the end of the day, you know, I, I was very sceptical about all things paranormal. Um, I can't be so sceptical now. I have to be objective and open-minded, but, um, right. you know, I, I still, there's still a lot out there which is not true. You know, a lot of hopes and a lot of fakes and things. You've got to rummage through them. Um, and if you've been involved in the field, you know what to look for to, to find the answers, you know. But um, right. it would seem that the world's full of paranormal normal events now it's very plentiful right. and back in 1995 right. it wasn't so much then <laughs> <laughs> well well think about this i mean you you found out just in this investigation alone that these things can't be quantifiable you can't measure them to some degree there there is evidence which will which could be called scientific or scientifically measurable to some extent and when people uh, you know so-called skeptics which i really believe tend to be mostly debunkers and people who are in denial when they try to say that these things don't exist or come up with some convoluted explanation for something, which is what often happens, what they fail to understand is that we live in a universe with an, that is composed of an electromagnetic and gravitational spectrum that is essentially infinite. Okay, mm. and we only we only perceive a very small part of that spectrum with our senses. Okay, yeah. And, and it's not so much that these things don't exist because we cannot measure them, as they like to say. It's that our ability, uh, our ability to measure them, the means by which we measure them and even perceive them, is severely limited. Because we can only create things which, which are quantifiable by our own senses in terms of, of measurement tools. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does make sense, yeah. I mean, we might not just have anything devised for, for that. You know, we just have a lot of, right. at this moment in time, we can only rely mostly on our perceptions, but they they vary drastically anyway. Well, well even, even our even our technical abilities are limited because of our the limits on our perceptions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we are blind to it. I mean, we are very much limited amongst the you know audible and visual spectrums and, and of course we just don't we just don't know i mean you know i'm right <laughs> out of all the animals on this planet we're probably the most limited actually and so <laughs> we're probably the least 
likelihood to to experience more paranormal phenomena than than anything else. But uh, you know, I can well imagine what people may think. No, you know, listening to something like this, it's like it, it sounds unbelievable to me. And if I hadn't seen it by my own eyes, you know, I, I'd never believed it to be honest. Yeah. And when Jenny first contacted me, the first thing that went through my mind is. I, I, what's she going to think of me? <laughs> she probably thinks I've, I've lost the plot, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know. But it's only by sticking in this field for thirty-three years, people, people, people know me for my investigations. I leave no stone unturned. I say that it is, as exactly as it is, you know. And it, and you know, I've, and and, and I, there are people out there dislike because you know I have discredited you know and found hoaxing and things like that. And unfortunately, I just that's the way I am. I'm very thorough. And I say that is is, and I'm always honest with people when they ask me to to take part in certain things. And I say, look, you know, if I if that's what you want, then that's fine. But I'll say it as it is, and you know, I'll let people know if you, I find something hokey, you know. Um, and and people admire me, I think, that for for being that honest, really, you know. But um, I I I just think it's I think it's important to try and advance the subject of parapsychology in some way because it's so stagnant. You know, we do need to move on, guys. But, you know, since the Victorians started this over 100 years ago, we've, we've not come very far, and we need to change. The biggest change we need to do is the methodology of our investigation. That's what needs to change, because if we carry on the way we're doing it, we're never going to get the answers that we want, you know. So we've got to start, you know, widening that horizon in, in regards how we're going to conduct these tests. But I think Jenny... He must have thought I'd lost the plot at first. <laughs> she was first to hear it. <laughs> no, I didn't think that at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think luckily, I think luckily that you know Jenny had also, you know, she she'd come from a, a background where she was already aware of this phenomena with Tom uh, and done some research and, and had wrote the, the other book and, and of course, and that's good. But for somebody coming into the subject for the first time, um. You know, there's a lot of information out there about poltergeist infestations. You don't know what's true. You don't know uh, what's real or what has been added to the case and the raw data. But, you know, f when I, I always cringe when people ask me about the Rochdale poltergeist case because the first thing that goes through my mind is it's too unbelievable to, to believe. And, and it is, but if you were there and you witnessed it just as I witnessed it, you know, it, it scars you. It, it stays, it stayed in my mind. Mm. You know, from from this day forward, and I've done hundreds and hundreds of investigations all over the place, and uh, and lectured all over the world. So, you know, and and rarely did people ever ever ask me about the Rochdale Poltergeist case until recently because of the book. Even though like, we did have a report up on our website about it, um, we never really questioned much about it. To be honest with you, after the big after the the media interest had died on it, but um, you know, I'm. I'm I, I'm glad to say, as it is, you know, that's exactly what happened. Um, I've, I'm not in touch with the family anymore. I, I last talked with the family maybe six years ago. Um, in total of 33 years, I've done, I think, six poltergeist infestations. That was the most significant one. Um, right. And I've never come across them again, that, that, that particular phenomenon ever. Well, I have a question for both. Mike, both let, me, let, let, me, let me have you hold that question for a minute because okay. we need Thanks. to go and uh, uh, do our final break of the evening. And okay. uh, uh, keep, keep that question in mind because we'll uh, uh, right. bring that up as soon as we come back. So uh, you are listening to The Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. We are talking about uh, Poltergeist with uh, Steve Mira and Jenny Ashford. So stay tuned. We will be right back. <laughs>
For the first time in the inspired pages of Bible Spells, Reverend William Orabello unveils a concealed code hidden throughout the Holy Scriptures that can bring you an abundance of money, personal success, as well as love, good luck, healing, happiness, and protection of your home as well as loved ones. More important than the Bible code are Nostradamus' prophecies. This secret code was revealed to Reverend Orabello during an encounter with divine supernatural beings who changed his life forever. Now you can learn this unique system yourself to materialize all of your personal needs and influence others. Order William Orabello's Bible Spells from Amazon.com or get your copy, a free Bazaar Bazaar subscription as well as a bonus companion DVD for $20 with free shipping and handling by calling 646-331-6777. We're rewarding you for something you already do, listening to us. It's Radio Loyalty, and it's an easy way for you to get free stuff. All you do is sign up. Go ahead and click the banner now. You'll earn points as you listen. Points you can trade in for great products and services in the Radio Loyalty store. You can earn even more points when you share your favorite station with friends on Facebook and Twitter. Radio Loyalty, it's free to sign up. So click the banner to join now. Free stuff for you just for listening to this station. Yeah, we got your attention. Here's how it works. You click on the Radio Loyalty banner right now and sign up. Then you keep on listening like you already do. But now you earn points. Those points add up, and you can trade them in for cool stuff in the Radio Loyalty store. Earn more points by sharing your station with friends on Facebook and Twitter, answering surveys, and by using the apps in the new player's app store. Pretty simple. Free stuff just for doing what you already do. Radio Loyalty. Click the banner to join now. Only in the forest can you see this. But nothing beats the moment you see that. Cool! That's your child's eyes opening up to a world of possibilities. There are some moments only the forest can inspire. Find yours at discovertheforest.org. Learn about forests near you and discover cool things to do when you go. And you might just see this. Visit discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Put a team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with Key Information Solutions. Providing solutions to your Internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology. Preventative maintenance and networking support. Hardware and custom-built computers. Let Key Information Solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call Key Information Solutions now. 954-973-3374. That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. You're listening to The Outer Edge Radio with William Michael Mott and Tim Schwartz. Only on PSN Radio. Welcome back to the final segment of the Outer Edge. And uh, before we uh, left on our break here, Mike, you were getting ready to ask a question, and I'll be I'll be polite and let you do that now. Right, I appreciate that. Oh, and, you're uh, welcome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, my question, you know, for some more input from both Jenny and, and Steve is that, you know, after years of researching these types of things, I, I 
I have come to realize that many times when someone is researching or writing about uh, topics like this, they will experience strange phenomena themselves, uh, inexplicable things. You know, I have a we have a uh, another friend who I won't name Tim, but he's been on the show a few times. He was working on a book, and one night he contacted me and said that something was walking around on his roof, quite heavy, and he got the impression that it was uh, coming to his skylight as if it were trying to look in. He would go outside, and there was nothing there. He would go back in and start writing again, and it would happen again. I, it happens all the time. So I was just wondering if, you know, if as a result of writing uh, on this particular case or during the, the process of writing about it, if either of you experience any type of strange phenomena or, or, or mysterious happenings yourselves. Right. Well, I'll let, I'll let Jenny go first. I mean, I know she witnessed something quite recently. Yeah, that's true. And it's funny because I had never, um, I mean, I'd always been a skeptic before, you know, Tom's story. And so I had never seen anything in my whole entire life. And, you know, through Tom telling me his story and writing, you know, Mammoth Mountain and writing Steve Mara's book, um, I was always kind of like, wow, it, you know, it's, it'd be scary, but I sure would like to see it, you know, because I've never witnessed anything like that. And weirdly, after the book came out, Tom and I were sitting in our living room, and his mother was here, and two of our friends were here. And we were just sitting there, like, trying to get a movie to start on the TV, and all of a sudden the remote control just blew off the coffee table and, like, and hit the ground, and no one had touched it. It didn't bounce. Right. It, didn't, it just kind of, like, flew off, and, like, hit, and we're all just, like, sitting there looking at it going, did you guys just, yeah. you know, see that? Yeah. Oh, you, you have <laughs> like no idea was, how many times I've heard that, believe me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so basically it's like, first of all, be careful what you wish for. Yeah. And second of all, it's kind of like, looky, looky what I can do. Aren't you scared? Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, it was odd because I guess it didn't really scare me in the sense because, I guess because it didn't seem odd at first, like until I thought about it for a few seconds, and I was like, oh, hey, wait a minute, how did that happen? Well, And I, also because... You know, also because I figured it was probably, I mean, I'm kind of operating under the assumption that, you know, Tom's poltergeist, I think, was him doing it, like, subconsciously. So right. I kind of, like, turned to him and I was like, did you do that? And then he was kind of spaced out at the time, and he's like, oh, maybe, yeah. I well, I'll tell you the truth. I, I knew some guys in college who had a bunch of weird stuff going on in their apartment. And yeah. one day something happened very similar to that, where a small object actually raised up and levitated across the room and, and landed in the floor in front of all three of these guys. And instead of being and they they had been having stuff happen periodically. And instead of being scared, they all laughed hysterically and mocked it, you know, like, ha, 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 I'm so scared. Yeah. You know, Ooh, that's spooky. You know, and making fun of it. And after that, after they did that, nothing ever happened again. Yeah. I kind of have a feeling it might, it, I think fear kind of like fuels it. Yes. And they were serious, yeah. in their, they were serious in their ridicule. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So after that, nothing. I mean, it went from very active to zilch after they did that. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. What, about, what, what, what about you, Steve? Um, well, you know, I've been involved in the subject for such a long time and never really been away from it, to be honest. Um, yeah. I mean, after, after the incident in 1995, there was about a year of chaos in regarding international interest regarding the, the investigation. 
um, reporters, the, the Japanese came over from Nippon Television and Fuji to Japanese TV and we all wanted to do interviews and talks and, and it appeared in all sorts of different newspapers and magazines around the world. Um, after about a year it sort of died, you know, it sort of eventually it ran its course of interest. I plodded on with the corporate investigations and by 1997, um, I took a little bit of a twist in, 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 in what I was doing regarding, I was writing for some television shows, um, and I continued writing for quite a number of years for different TV, um, TV series and things like that, and, and what happened then, uh, just purely by chance, one day I ended up in front of the camera, <laughs> instead of, instead of writing for stuff from behind it, and, um, I got involved in television, done about a hundred and TV shows now, and, and everything was just, you know, I still got time to do the investigations, I still lecture and I write and tutor parapsychology, and I do as much as I possibly can, it's a very busy life. And, um, I still get time to do investigations occasionally, but, um, you know, nothing really excited me until, there's only been two incidents, there's the Rochdale Poltergeist case and then something that occurred 18 months ago, um, which has led me on the path I'm on actually, currently actually on at the minute, and, and I was contacted by a gentleman who wanted me to attend an investigation with him, and I told him, um, you know, are you a paranormal researcher? And he said, yes. I said, well, you know, I'm a parapsychologist, and, you know, we don't often mix the two together. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm out, out there to try and rationalise, you know, anything I possibly can. They're usually out to prove, you know, life after death, you know. So, um, I said I wasn't the sort of guy he needed, and, you know, um, and, and he was persistent, and said, look, you know, you're exactly the guy I need. So, I thought, fine, okay, there must be a reason why he's asking me to come along. Unbeknown to me, at that time, that this guy is a catalyst. And what I've witnessed over the last 18 months um, is incredible. Um, and I'm talking about communication with, I don't know if you, I don't like to put labels on them and things, you know, but, you know, he refers to them as spirits, but I don't know, it's recordings, I ask questions, I can get replies. <laughs> it's, it's quite remarkable. Anyway, it's been set into a TV series now called Phenomena Project, which is going international. We're in Seattle in January, um, and numerous other countries following. And for me, you know, I'm, 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 I've got that back into the the awe, you should say, of it. You know, of the wonder and the awe, and, and and I thought I would never get that again after 1995, but I have over the last 18, 18 months, what I've experienced, um, and we've got the evidence to prove it, you know, and, and we've got a lot of science guys on the back of this as well. It's incredible. So, you know, we're, we're trying to get out there proper information about the evidence of paranormal phenomena. The problematics of this is, is that there are, I mean, we put a little bit, it's a little, give you a little, <laughs> a little taste here. <laughs> what happened was, from communications with whatever these are, we have obtained some information and it was regarding questioning about, about, you know, life after death and where we go and the transition and this, that and the other. We just pondered on those and what the questions were. And we, we got answers back. And I remember putting something up on the internet um, about a month ago. I was immediately contacted by a priest who asked me where I got the information from. And he was, by all intents, he was quite a high-ranking 
priest as well. Um, and I said, well, I didn't really go into too much information about it. I said, we'd obtained it through a paranormal source. And he said, you're not really supposed to put that sort of information up and this, that, and the other, and, and, and try to, and try to convince us to take it down. Now, it led us to believe that this isn't the only time such things have happened over the last 18 months about obtaining information. It would seem that maybe some people do know a little bit more than what they share and, and that, you know, some things are kept quiet, maybe that they don't want to change belief systems. And after the end of the day, you know, um, it, you know, if people don't fear death, then there is, there is a lack of control, you know, so. We've got to be careful at the same time because we are trying to get the right type of information out, but we don't want to change people's belief systems. We just want to tell it as it is and what we've experienced and what the evidence is behind it. And there is a lot of interest in me. I know Discovery International have got it at the minute. They're looking over it. So, uh, but it's Phenomena Project. It's, it's got its own website, phenomenaproject.tv. So the right. information's there, but it's, it's exactly the same thing, exactly the same feeling from like the Rochdale Poltergeist case. You know, that I've, I've never had it before since then. So. I, I'm curious to know, you and I have a mutual friend in, in Brian Allen's, Allen, and I wonder if, if Brian, what, 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 how Brian, what Brian thinks about this case. Has he ever told you what he thinks about um, it? Brian's aware of the, of the Rochdale Portuguese case, and, you know, we have talked about it, and he, you know, he's in awe. He's like, wow, you know, and that's incredible, and you wish I'd seen it, it was, you know, and I said to yeah. you know, I think it's just purely by chance. I surely it must be because I've I've never come across anything like that before, you know, of that nature and the and the waterfall. Yeah. It was incredible. And I probably never will do it ever again. Um being the right place at the right time, I don't know. No, maybe I've no explanation. But all I can say is is that if such things can happen, then where do we draw the line as to what is possible and what isn't? You know, it, it, it suddenly turned me around that day. My whole life changed. It turned me around that day in, in regarding all those people that had contacted me over the years, the parapsychological department saying these wonderful stories, and we used to just think, we had a, I mean, amongst our, my circles, we used to have a raised eyebrow and a giggle over it at lunch with other parapsychologists, you know. Yeah. <laughs> at the end of the day, some of them guys may have been credible and not too happy with us, you know, and that's because we'd become closed-minded. You know, and it's just because we hadn't experienced. Now, you have to understand, you know, I understand people out there not don't need to believe in anything they've never witnessed because, you know, that's just belief and you shouldn't really, it's not a matter of belief, it's a matter of evidence. But for me, I saw what I saw and we had the evidence, what we obtained, and that makes it very real for me as it does for other people. Well, I put myself in them, their shoes and if I was to tell, you know, I understand how they may feel in me telling somebody else that with a raised eyebrow. You know, and, and I'm from the inside circle, so, you know, I felt a little bit sorry that maybe I'd have been a little bit harsh to some of them. <laughs> right, right. Well, did, did you ever get the impression during this whole investigation that you were dealing with more than one entity or more than one force? Um, I never got the feeling of that. A feeling that it was a, it was a very singular if it wasn't, if you want to label this an entity, if it, a singular entity, um, but uh, a controlling one, an intelligent one, um, a persecuting, it was definitely persecuting the family. Yeah. Uh, but had the capabilities, though, and this is what was really interesting, had the capabilities to manifest, you know, phenomena whilst, right. the, family, whilst the family weren't there. Now, if Jeanette was responsible, 
you know, then she was doing it, trans you know, she wasn't there at the time. She was, she was at a family's, uh, a good half a mile away, you know. Yeah, so. that, that's very suspicious. Yeah, Definitely. it is. So, uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it would seem it's poltergeist infestation, but, uh, not directly associated to the catalyst and under certain circumstances. So, but yet the phenomena followed, followed them for three weeks and the first place it manifested was in Jeanette's womb. So, you know, it's really hard to work out. I'm interested in uh, uh, the uh, what you previously was talking about the uh, the catalyst that's uh, uh, yeah. involved with the television show uh, that yeah. you're doing. Uh, is the communications that he's uh, uh, receiving uh, is this uh, uh, channeled information, or I mean, how is how is he well, receiving it and putting it out there? I'll, yeah. I'll tell you, if you paint the scene, I was invited to a location in, in Leicester, in England. I drove 150 miles to this location. I went with another investigator. I said to that investigator, don't get comfortable. I'm going to be here an hour. We're there for 15 hours. Because I, I was faced with, the first thing I was faced with was a recorder, two recorders, in fact, um, um, Olympus recorders, digital recorders, which were shown to me. I, I, was, I placed stickers on the back. I signed them. Uh, numbered them, made sure that they weren't swapped. I formatted them myself. I used folder A. He placed one in each of his hands. He pressed record for 10 seconds and said, guys, do you want to say anything to Steve? I had a bit of a grin on my face. I was trying to hold it back to tell you the truth because I thought, yeah, I have been, I'd seen these sideshows before. <laughs> he pressed stop on the recorder. And he pressed play in a very clear, prominent, female voice came over and said hello steve hmm. wow. that caught my attention immediately yeah yeah now at that point i ripped the damn thing off his, out of his hand and got my recorders out okay now i know my recorders because if you need you know the tested the, you know the, the, nothing wrong with them and i said do it again so he did it again and he continued to do it for the next 15 hours and i could not believe what was happening you know, I even did tests, hidden, you know, I did, I did an envelope test with hidden pictures in, so you had absolutely no idea what was in them. And yet these, whoever, what they are, told him exactly which envelope and what pic, what picture was in it, you know, and it, it was all done under, it was all video recorded and documented and, and witnessed and, and since then, the people that have come on board because of the evidence, which is just, is incredible. It, we, we, you know, we're getting so much interest now internationally because we've got big names which are really interested to societies of psychical research and, you know, and, and, and real big wigs in the, in the, in the, in the worldly field of paranormal research. I mean, I've talked extensively with Dr. Barry Taft about this, this, these, this case and he put forward some ideas of investigation process and, you know, it's, it's incredible. We've, we've found a person which, has a direct line to something which communicates by recording devices. And you can switch those recording devices, and it doesn't matter where you are or when it is. You know, right. it, it, it seems to be ever-present, and, and that's remarkable. We even done a remote test so that we could find out what somebody was holding up on another location and ask the, the, this person, whoever it is, to find out what is being held up, and, and that came back as a, a correct response as well. And he was, and we were even told things of the near future, which have unfolded, and they have unfolded, but they're always in the near future, within the week or two. 
you know <laughs> it's incredible it really is it's, we've got it all documented and it's the test wow. is still continuing but it's he's incredible this guy absolutely incredible I, and i thought i'd never witness anything so profound in my life until after Rochdale Bonsky's case but that's in comparison to this because this has been going on now for 18 months and I'm no nearer getting to any truth as to what it is hmm. but this gentleman you know always, uh, this yeah. gentleman always has to be present though for for this to work yeah yeah only only it only works around him ah interesting hmm exactly he is definitely a catalyst he's been he's had it since he was seven years of age apparently well, you know, more traditional belief systems would say that he is, uh, if not demonically possessed, he would be demonically oppressed. Yeah, but if you met him, he's just like no more and just like a normal yeah, guy. Yeah, well, sure. Well, a lot of times they are people who people who are uh, oppressed. Nice, really nice. Yeah, you know, yeah. a lot uh, of times people who are oppressed are just yeah. like everybody else. Yeah. It's, it's not. It's not their fault that they're oppressed, in other words. Yeah. It's just that they have drawn the attention of, of something or some things that are intent mm. on, on manifesting around them. Well, you know, the main spirit is with him. He calls, uh, he calls Becky because of... Yeah, see, there you go. Becky yeah. Martin. Um, we, we know where she died, if it is her and a well, child. It, it claims to be her. Claims to be her. So if that's the case, he knows about her history, or he knows about the death of the, of the person, sure. and how it, how it happened, when it happened, where she's buried, and where her parents live, and things like that. But these over 18 months, I mean, my 18 months, I mean, Don's had this for seven, since he was seven years of age. Um, he, he said he's never been anything untoward. He's always been helpful and, and, and kind, and, you know, but the most profound things do happen. <laughs> around him very very strange <laughs> and i have no explanation for it at all tim i have no explanation for it and i you know i'm trained in this field and i have absolutely no clue you know and the guys i'm, I'm working with you know for the first time they're scratching their heads you know so it's incredible uh any any chance that uh this is uh this will air in the united states anytime yeah it's looking to we're trying to get it out into the united states first actually um and hence that's why <coughs> excuse me we're over in seattle in january and we've got a meeting with cbs news there as well and we're, we're, we're conducting an investigation um under phenomena project as one of the episodes there um in seattle and um and it's already had quite a bit of coverage already this case um and it's it's a bit hard to say what it is at the moment in time but there's there's some quite disturbing incidents taking place at a home a residential home so we're, we're we're dealing with that but at the same time we've got american networks looking at the show at the moment and uh, there's been a lot of interest you know so and like we say we're trying to cut through because you know that some of the information has come back from networks of saying with their surprise that we've actually found um a market for it because we thought or like they thought that the paranormal had been saturated on the market because there's absolutely nothing else you can do on the paranormal on tv and <laughs> um, however we proved it wrong because there's nobody out there who's doing what we're doing because we'll do it we'll do it there when we've provide the evidence we provide the analysis you know so we kind of what we do is we kind of try and rationalize and debunk everything ourselves as best we can but then we've always got phenomena around this catalyst, and that's what makes it really interesting. A power psychologist trying to debunk a guy who's coming up with all this, that, and the other. So you can well imagine it gets a bit heated at times. 
Right. Yeah, that's an understatement, <laughs> probably, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, well, uh, guys, unfortunately, we are almost out of time here, so I want to I want to give you both a chance to uh, let people know where uh, they can find out more about you. Jenny, uh, let's uh, let's start with you first. Uh, uh, now is your time. I mean, do you have a, a online presence? Uh, working on a, a new book, or uh, where uh, pe- can people find your your current books? <laughs> Um, sure, all my books are available on Amazon, and that's uh, two terrestrial poltergeists. I also did another paranormal nonfiction called The Mammoth Mountain Poltergeist, and I also write horror fiction. Um, all my books are on Amazon. Um, pretty much all of them are print and ebook. I also have a website at jennyashford.com, and I have a horror blog at goddessofhellfire.com. All right, and uh, Steve, cool. Steve, where, uh, where can uh, our listeners find out more about you? Um, you know, all my details, uh, where do I just start? I'll just try and keep, keep it nice and brief. All right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, running Phenomena magazine, as, as, as you know, um, which has been running for seven years. That's available on phenomenamagazine.co.uk. It's free. It's a monthly publication. We're up to or issue 79 now. covers everything about the, the, the strange and the unknown. Um, I've got several books out myself. Um, you can find them on Amazon or you can just Google Steve Mera and a lot of information will come up there. Uh, I lecture all over the world, so you know, if details are all up on the websites, uh, Phenomena Magazine's website. There's also the Mappet website, which is an organisation I took over in 89. It's been running since 1974. Uh, and that's Mappet, uh, www. Um, at mapit.kk5.org that's M-A-P-A-M-A-P-I-T mapit.kk5.org uh, or you can find me on Facebook I'm all over the place there Steve Mayer, Phenomena Magazine Mapit and the Scientific Establishment of Parapsychology SCP um, I suppose the best easiest ways is if people just Google Steve Mayer they'll find me IBM and uh, and all the relative information that they need all right, fantastic. Well, I want to thank you both for taking your time to be with us this evening. Absolutely, yeah, we really appreciate it. Uh, just an absolutely fascinating program, and uh, I'm, I'm really glad uh, that uh, that we could have you on tonight. Well, and thank you, guys. Back. Yeah, he's loved to come back. I could tell you a few things over the last 33 years, but uh, it's been a great night, and I've enjoyed it, so thanks very much for the opportunity. All right, we appreciate it. All right, so we need to uh, wrap it up here, Mike. Uh, so uh, thank you to uh, all of our listeners. Thank you to our guest. Uh, I'm Tim Swartz. You've been listening to The Outer Edge. Be sure to be with us this time next week where I'm certain we will have another fascinating program. So good night, and everyone take care. Take care.